0: The reading this morning is from Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace.
1: Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for your words. We thank you, Lord God, that as we read your words, Lord, we're challenged, we're changed, we're edified, we're built up. And as we talk together this morning about your amazing grace, I pray, Father God, that each and every person in this room and those watching online will experience something today of your goodness, your grace, your love, and your mercy Lord, where hearts might have grown cold, I pray, Father God, for hearts to be strangely warmed once again in this place. Lord, where we have wandered from you, I pray, Father God, that we'll find our way back to you today. Father, for those who might be among us who don't know you and have never come to a saving faith in Jesus, may today, I pray, be the day of salvation. Have your way, King Jesus, your holy name. Amen. Well, we're in week three of what we have called our Like a Child series. We're running two series sermon series simultaneously at the moment here at the church. Every week there's not a dedication, we're looking at 1 John. And every week there is a dedication, we're going through this alternative thematic series that we have called Like a Child. And in many respects, the whole concept of this series is quite a strange concept, isn't it? I mean, in what other area of life would you hear anyone say, you need to be more like a child? Does someone going for an interview for a job promotion ever think to themselves, if I want to nail this interview, I'm going to have to act like a two-year-old as I go for this interview? Do the pundits on Match of the Day every week say, if this team are going to win the league this year, they need to start defending like toddlers? Does someone who has money issues and money worries think to themselves, right, the way I'm going to get out of my situation and my circumstances right now is to start saving my pennies by putting them in a penny penny bank like a 5 year old No other area of life, generally, do we aspire to be like a child, yet Jesus uttered these words. Unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you cannot enter it. And with that in mind, over the past few weeks, what we've done together as a church is we focused on some of the attributes of God by looking at them through the eyes of a child. We've looked together at the fact that God is a good God and that he is for us. Last time, we looked at the fact that God is with us, that God is omnipresent, meaning that God is absolutely everywhere all of the time, but God is also a personal God, meaning that we can say that whatever's going on in my life, my God is with me. And today, as we open up this series a little bit more together this morning, I want to talk about perhaps one of the most talked about things in Christian theology, but if we're honest, probably the most least understood thing in Christian theology as well. And I'm talking this morning about God's grace. A child might put it like this, my God forgives me. I want to suggest this morning that children understand this concept and this notion of grace better than adults because we ultimately struggle with it when we begin to talk about it. And my hope and my prayer for each and every one of us here in this room today and those who are joining us this morning online is that truly by the end of our time together we will all be able to utter the words, my God forgives me. Grace at its core, is an undeserved favor. Because the fact of the matter is, we have all messed up in our lives. We have all thought things wrong. We have all said things wrong. We have all done things wrong, which the Bible calls sin. And the Bible says that because of the way that we have all messed up and we've all turned our backs on God at some point, we actually deserve punishment. We deserve to be cut off from God. We deserve death. And ultimately, we deserve hell. But the amazing grace of God's, that undeserved favour that God comes with us for, is that Jesus came to earth. Jesus came and he lived this life that we were supposed to have lived. He lived this perfect life and he dies a death on a cross that means that we can be rescued from the pit. And that is the ultimate form of undeserved favour and undeserved grace. That you and I today can know complete and total forgiveness from everything that has gone on in our past for all of our slip-ups for all of our mistakes for those which have been blatantly public for those that have been very private and as a result of that we too if we put our trust in Jesus can utter the words my God forgives me kids understand grace. Kids understand forgiveness because the moment a child gets themselves into trouble their world stops because for a moment at least often when a child gets themselves into trouble they're separated from their mum and dad. They might end up on the naughty step for a short time and what do they want when they're in that position on that naughty step more than anything else? They want to be restored they want to hug, they want to know that they are loved, they want to know that it's all okay. The Bible says this in 1 John 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. That's amazing, isn't it? If we come to God and we say, God, I've blown it, I deserve punishment and I need your forgiveness the Bible says that when we do that God forgives and he purifies us from all unrighteousness and what I want us to do this morning is to unpack a little bit of of God's forgiveness and ask the question what does it actually look like because let's face it if you're a Christian if you go to church If you've been around church any time in your life, this is not new stuff to you. You know that the Bible tells us that God forgives, but the reality is often we don't live in the light of that truth. And the first question to help us understand what we're talking about together this morning is simply this. How does God forgive us? The very first thing that I want us to note today is that when we come and we confess our sins to God, the first thing that God does is he removes our sin from us. Psalm 103 verse 12 puts it like this. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Do you see the enormity of that statement today? That this all-knowing, all-powerful, always-there God, when we come to him and we ask for forgiveness when we admit that we have blown it, when we admit our need for him, he completely and utterly detaches our sin and disassociates our sin from us. That's incredible, isn't it? Well, if you think that's amazing, and I really hope you do this morning, just wait until you hear this next verse that we're going to in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 25. It says this, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will remember no more your sin. If you think the fact that this all-powerful, all-knowing, always-there God disassociates us from our sin is an amazing thing, just get your minds around the verse that we have just read together. Because this all-knowing God, the one who the Bible tells us knows the ends from the beginning, when we come to him and we confess our sins to him, he chooses to limit his memory that when we confess our sins, he remembers our sin no more. Wow. Wow. God doesn't remember our sin. He chooses to limit his memory. So when we walk around with that kind of dark cloud of shame above us, even after we've come to God and we have confessed our sins, when we're walking around feeling incredibly guilty for the things that we have done, God has forgotten them. Because we have come to him and we have asked for his forgiveness and the Bible tells us he's forgotten them. I don't know too much about these things because, believe it or not, I am still only in my 30s. And I've grown up with computers pretty much my whole life. But I am told that back in the olden days, there were these things called typewriters. Um, When you would type a document out on a typewriter, you would hit a key. And as you hit the key on the typewriter, almost instantaneously, the letter appeared on the page. Now, the problem with this is that, When you hit the wrong key, the mistake also instantaneously appeared on the page. Anyone remember those days here, I wonder? There's a few people that do remember those days. And the problem is that when you would make a mistake on a typewriter, you would have to get some tipex and you would have to neatly, as you could, tipex out the mistake and then carry on. The problem with that is didn't matter how neatly you would tip X out the mistake, the mistake was still there. The mistake was still visible. You could tell that the person typing the letter got it wrong. That is not how God deals with our sin. God doesn't just simply cover over our sin or cover up our sins. God deals with our sins much like a modern computer deals with our mistakes. He doesn't simply cover them up, he deletes them. I stole something, I lied, I cheated. God, forgive me, delete. It's gone. doesn't exist. God remembers it no more. In many respects, children live this way, don't they? grace is something which is immediate to a child it's simple and it affects their lives as if it were true so take our boys for example our boys I don't know 50% of the time are best friends 50% of the time they're at each other's throats they could be playing together nicely at one moment in their life and the next moment They're going for each other. And we hear this noise coming from somewhere in the house. And we go to investigate and we say, what's going on? And they both state their cases for what's happened. He's done this, he's done that. And we try our best to get to the bottom of what has actually gone on. And when we think we have understood what's gone on, we'll say to one of our boys, right, you say sorry to your brother. And they'll say, no. And we say, say sorry. And generally what comes back at that point is, sorry. And then we say, say it like you mean it. And they say, sorry. And the other one hears the apology, generally accepts the apology, and two minutes later, they're playing again as if nothing has happened. The situation warranted an apology. Someone said, sorry, it was forgotten. They go off and play again, at least for a few minutes until someone else does something wrong. and We go through the whole situation and cycle again. But as adults, we don't do that, do we? You see, what happens... Often when we come to God and we say sorry, we come to God and we say, God, I've messed up, I've stuffed up, I've got this wrong. I'm sorry for everything that I've done. Please forgive me. And God says, I forgive you. But instead of living in the light of that forgiveness... We often walk around with this kind of cloud of guilt on our heads and this self-hatred and this shame and this insecurity that everyone knows what I've done, so no one's going to want to be my friend anymore. And be honest with yourself for a minute, I wonder. How many people in this room have confessed something at some point to God and then still struggled with the guilt afterwards? I know I have. I I think the reality is if you're a Christian here, you've probably felt the same. You're like, I feel no different. I just feel as bad as I did before. I feel completely unforgiven. So, if children get this idea of grace, how come we don't a lot of the time? I mean, we know the truth that God removes our sins. If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time, you probably could have quoted those two verses that I read out a little bit earlier. We know that the Bible tells us that He removes our sin. But we just don't feel free. We find ourselves at times in this kind of prison of condemnation. Here's the difference children naturally live under a culture of grace, whereas grown ups, what we have done is we've learned to live under a culture of law. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Bible, what we see in the Old Testament is that God gives the law to his people, Israel. It's a set of rules which they're called to live by. And if they can live by these rules in their entirety, they can get close to God. They can access God. The problem is no one could ever keep the law in its entirety. There was not a single person who could do that. So God sends Jesus into the world who was able to keep the law. And because Jesus lives this perfect life and he died on the cross, what we read in scripture is he fulfilled the law, meaning that we can now live under grace, meaning that I am not good enough, but Jesus is. And he has lavished that undeserved favour upon me. So I can be completely forgiven and I can be free and have a relationship with him. But what happens is that as Christians at times, we say that we live under grace, but we end up making our own law, which is clearly unbiblical. And it goes something like this. God of grace, thank you for your grace. But it seems to me a little too good to be true. Nothing in this world is free after all. So this is what I am going to do, Lord. I'm going to make sure that I get up extra early every single day and spend half an hour with you every single day. Because if I do this for you, you'll love me so much more, won't you, Lord? It will make me a better Christian. Do you get the point that I'm making? I wonder if you've ever fallen into that trap. And then we say... To ourselves at least inside well if I don't do this Lord you're probably going to be really mad at me God and we get up and we do these kind of things for a few days and then we find ourselves falling back into our own patterns and we feel like we're under this prison of condemnation or it could be God I feel pretty bad for the way that I've acted and the way that I've behaved over the course of the last week so here's what I'm going to do today God I'm going to put an extra 10 pounds in the offering to make up for it. All of these things are law and quite frankly these are the things which often keep us from experiencing the life-changing reality of God's grace. Today I want us to define grace like this. Grace is the life-changing constant awareness of what I have been given in light of what I deserve. Every morning, every minute, every hour God has given me forgiveness even when I was deserving of hell. Let me say that again. Grace is the life-changing, constant awareness of what I have been given in light of what I deserve. Every morning, every minute, every hour, God has given me forgiveness, even when I was deserving of hell. Here is the truth this morning, church. God's grace, plus anything that you bring to the table, is not God's grace at all. God's grace is fully sufficient. It's a, I'm going to pay the whole debt kind of grace or I am not going to pay it at all. And the truth is, We don't have to do one thing, one single thing to add anything to what Jesus has already done on the cross. This is a free gift and it is paid in full. And you're either going to receive it or you're not. You cannot work at getting it. That is prison. That is the law because you can't obtain it. And once we realize this, it changes everything. Again, Like I said, this is one of those truths that we face as the Christian where we say that we believe it. We say that we have fully trusted in Jesus to pay the penalty for all of the wrong things that we've ever done. But the truth is at times we don't truly believe it. I want to tell you an account of a woman this morning. We've heard the story read to us already from the Bible who perhaps paints the biggest picture for us this morning about what it means to live under grace. It's found in Luke chapter 7. The Bible describes this woman as a sinful woman. The fact of the matter is, she was a prostitute. And at some point in her life, she had an encounter with Jesus. And she received something from him which she simply didn't deserve. She received mercy, she received grace, she received forgiveness, she received hope. And one day, she hears that Jesus is in town and he's going to visit a man called Simon the Pharisee. A Pharisee is a religious leader and that one that would try to keep the law in its entirety, but not only would they try to keep the law in its entirety, they would add a whole bunch of extra laws that they were going to keep in order to make themselves extra pious. And this woman, uninvited, goes to Simon's house. He would not have wanted her there. She was a sinner. Pharisees, did not associate with sinners. They kept away from them as much as they possibly could. But nothing was going to keep this woman from Jesus. And she goes in and she falls on her knees and she begins to weep. Her tears stream down her face and they cover Jesus' feet. And then she takes her hair and she dries Jesus' feet with her hair and then she takes this alabaster jar an extremely expensive jar of perfume it probably cost this woman everything that she had and she broke it open and she poured it over Jesus feet the Pharisees were disgusted they're breaking all the rules this man says he's a prophet but how can he be a prophet if he is letting a woman like this touch him What was unfolding in front of their eyes was an extraordinary act. This wasn't a woman who was groveling or begging, but a woman who had realized that she had been set free and was now living under grace. What does it look like to live under grace? When we realize from day to day what we actually deserve to what we've actually been given. A couple of things which we see from this lady's story and about how grace then acts in our lives. Firstly, when we understand grace, it will change your heart's affection. The things which you desire, the things which are important to you, maybe even the things which you worship, will suddenly change the moment the grace enters your heart. When Jesus heard the words of Simon, when he realised the things which Simon was thinking, he says, Simon, do you see what this woman has done? I've come into your house and you've not offered me any water to wash my feet but this woman has not stopped washing my feet with her tears since I arrived. And she's drying them with her hair. You didn't offer me a kiss, but this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't offer to anoint my head with oil, but this woman has taken this incredibly expensive perfume and has anointed my feet. And then he says this, i tell you the truth. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown this woman wasn't requesting anything of jesus She was simply responding to what she had already received. And this extravagant act of worship was a sign that she was under God's grace. She got how expensive her sin was and how valuable God's grace is. Too often, what we value most of all in life is a comfortable life, a nice house, a nice car, our family around us and people's approval. Today, we need to see that there is no gift more valuable, no house which is big enough, no car which is fancy enough, which will surpass the grace that God gives to those if we would just accept it. And when we do, when we allow it to penetrate our hearts, it will change the way that we worship. It will ruin us in the best possible way. Everything else will become immaterial when we see Jesus in the light of what he has actually done for us. Not only does God change our heart's affection through his grace, but he also changes our life's direction. This was the most extravagant act of worship in the New Testament. This woman effectively pours one year's salary over Jesus' feet. The average person in Britain earns something like £28,000 a year. So we're talking about an incredible amount of money just poured over Jesus' feet right there. But even more extraordinary than that is what this act actually symbolises. You see, in Middle Eastern culture, women would often line the streets all day long. Some would be selling their bodies for money and some wouldn't be. How? Did a person tell the difference in those days between a prostitute and the average woman who was just out on the street? There was no red light district, there was no neon signs or anything like that. The difference was the smell. Prostitutes would distinguish themselves with an alabaster jar of perfume. It was their way to smell nice and to attract business. Men would walk by, smell the sweet aroma and then be enticed in and with that in mind do you see what's happening here in this act of worship she was not only pouring an expensive offering over the feet of Jesus in that moment she was declaring that she would never be a prostitute again that her old life was gone That her whole life old life was dead and now she was living only for Jesus God delighted in this woman's offering The same way he delighted in the offering of the thief on the cross when he cried out with his last breath to Jesus to remember him when he got to paradise. The God that we worship knows everything about you. Every hidden sin, every wrong thing you've ever done, every past mistake, every past regret. He knows about your weak faith. He knows about your shallow prayer life and he loves you. Because he made you. And what he wants from you today is to believe with faith, like a child, that he loves you and he wants you to receive it. And to live your life out of the overflow of that truth. He wants you to live your life in response to that truth. Saying, God, because of what you have done for me, because of everything that you have given me, I'm choosing to live my life for you. Cast off the baggage today. God has already forgiven it. Cast off the notion that we have to earn the favor of God today. You have God's favor just as you are. Stop carrying around the things which have burdened you for months, maybe even years, and allow God to deal with them today, knowing that my God forgives me and your God forgives you. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the band to come up.